Today's time in 1 Samuel 18 will be titled, Love Him or Fear Him. As we continue to try to answer the question, who will be king of Israel, and specifically, who will be king of us? And so as we gather together around the Word of God, may we do so with anticipation that the Word of God will produce within us a transformed reality of surrender to the God who is calling us into relationship. So let's begin our time with a, a brief time of prayer, and then we're going to read together uh, 1 Samuel chapter 18. So let's go before the Lord now in prayer. Lord, we have recognized and realized that your word transforms us. As we have read it, it has read our hearts. As we meditate upon it, our affections are transformed, our purposes are realigned. The dark corners of our hearts are exposed. And Lord, as we come before your word right now, we recognize the painful reality that we pursue the flesh over you. And so we confess that our hearts are darkened by sin and we ask the light of your word would shine upon us this day, bringing your wisdom, bringing your truth, bringing ultimate surrender to you as our king. And so Lord, may your word be effective in our hearts this morning for your glory and in your name we pray, amen. Join with me as we read here 1 Samuel chapter 18. And David is now becoming more of the main character through 1 Samuel, and we'll learn more about him and his role here for Israel as we partake of this passage, beginning here in verse 1 of chapter 18. As soon as he had finished speaking with Saul, he being David, the Saul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul, and Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David, because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him, and gave it to David, and his armor, and even his sword, and his bow, and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all people, and also in the sight of Saul's servants." And as they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul, with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And when the women sang to one another, they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. And he said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. And Saul had a spear in his hand. And Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall, but David evaded him twice. And Saul was afraid of David, because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand, and he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when, he saw, and when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. And then Saul said to David, Here is my elder daughter Merab. 
and I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battle. For Saul thought, let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, who am I, and who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? But at that time when Merib, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the Mahal, I'm going to ruin that, whatever that word is, for a wife. I tried in the first service as well, and I butchered it, so we're just going to skip over that. Now, Saul's daughter Michael loved David, and they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. And Saul thought, let me give her to him, that she may be a snare for him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, you shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, speak to David in private and say, behold, the king has delight in you, and all his servants love you. Now then, become the king's son-in-law. And David and Saul's servants spoke those words in the ears of David. And David said, Does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law, since I am a poor man and have no reputation? And the servants of Saul told him, Thus and so did David speak. Then Saul said, Thus shall you say to David, The king desires no bridal price except the hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. And before the time expired, David rose and went along with his men and killed 200 of the Philistines and brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter Michael for a wife. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the princes of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. So in order to properly understand this chapter, we need to go back a chapter and think through the significance of 1 Samuel chapter 17, a very familiar passage on David and Goliath that we heard last week. The reality of that event, of David and Goliath, of that battle is gigantic and has ginormous implications on this chapter and on our understanding of it. Let's think for a second on what exactly occurred in 1 Samuel 17. In 1 Samuel 17, we are coming to a pinnacle realizing that the Philistines were a major threat to Israel's existence. We know that. We've seen it throughout the entirety of 1 Samuel. The Philistines and their army, their gods, were a major threat to Israel's existence. And then for the last 40 days or so, the Philistines had sent out Goliath, this giant, to represent them and to mock Israel and also to mock Israel's God, to challenge Israel, to threaten Israel, to make Israel aware of the superiority of the Philistines. And it was clear that the result of that conflict there in 1 Samuel 17 would either result in the Israelites becoming slaves of the Philistines or being exterminated by the Philistines. And then walks in a 15 to 18 year old teenage boy. And he becomes the center of 
of the story. And he becomes the one who goes out for Israel and defeats the Philistine army. That 15 to 18 year old boy we know is David. And any of you who have teenage sons should marvel that Israel was trusting a 15 to 18 year old boy to go represent them. David, who is this man? Who is this young man? Who is this boy going out on behalf of Israel? We know this because we have scripture that tells us that David was basically a no one. He was a no one from a no one family. He was a shepherd boy, the youngest of the family. He was in the field, and when he was brought in, he was not necessarily as impressive as his older brothers. And so we can see here that this is an unimpressive young man who in no way, shape, or form should be the center of a story, yet we find him as the center of this story. Why is that? Well, in 1 Samuel 16, looking back just a little further, we see that this young boy was anointed by God. In fact, God uses the phraseology that he put a king for himself there. And this is how God operates. God directs, God sovereignly intervenes, and he puts his king in place of a king who could no longer be king. And what does God's king do? Well, God's king does what God desires him to do, and that is to be a deliverer for his people. And so David becomes a deliverer for the nation of Israel. And the narrator of 1 Samuel is placing all of us in this room and all those who have read this and all those who would read this, he's placing all of us at a point of tension with this passage of Scripture. And the question and the point that he's taking us to is to say, what will we do with this king? What will Israel do with this anointed king, the king that God himself has anointed, the king that God has put in place? The king who would replace the rejected king. And so David is no longer an unknown because of what happened in 1 Samuel 17. He's no longer a shepherd boy in the field. He's brought into the court of Saul. And notice here at the beginning of chapter 18 what is said about Saul's interaction with David. So Saul decides to take David into his home, into his court. Now, right away, as you read that, it should hearken back here to 1 Samuel chapter 8, where God said, you want a king, that's fine, Israel, you can have a king, but understand that when this king sits on the throne, he will be one who will take your young men. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 11 tells us that. And here we see the fruition of this. In this king, King Saul, he takes David into his court, refusing to let him return to his home. And so as David finds himself in the uh, world that he had previously only heard of, and not only was he just in this world, this royal world, he was the center of it, all those around him were wondering what to do with this man. And friends, for you and I today, as we read this, that's a significant question, not only in relation to David, but in relationship to who David was, God's anointed king. For God anoints another king in the line of David. We know him as Jesus Christ, our deliverer, God's anointed one. And the same question that Israel had to face then of what to do with that man, we now face the question, what shall we do with God's anointed king, 
namely Jesus Christ. And so for the remainder of 1 Samuel here, the narrator is pushing all of us who read it to answer that question. And the question is frankly this, what is the proper response to God's anointed king? What is the proper response and what does that look like? Our responses to the anointed king of God will always have an action associated with them. And so let's begin to look at the two main responses that we see here in 1 Samuel 18 by beginning with Jonathan. You see here in Jonathan, as soon as Jonathan had exposure to David here in 18 chapter 1 and chapter, or chapter 18 verse 1 and verse 2, we see that there was a, a knitting of the soul of David where he loved David as his own soul. That's an important language. That's a, a really important language. That language has, this, has a, the idea of a familial bond. It's the same language that was used in Genesis chapter 44 to describe Jacob's relationship with his son Benjamin. And so another way to think on this passage is that now Jonathan was looking at David as one of his family. Significant language, significant principle here. And why that is so important for us to understand and think through is who Jonathan was and who David was. For Jonathan, he was the next in line. He was to be king. And not only was he to be king, we know that Jonathan was one that Israel looked to as a deliverer for them. In 1 Samuel 14, we have exposure to Jonathan's actions, his bravery, his battle worthiness, the way in which he went out on behalf of both Israel and God. Jonathan was the next in line, the one that Israel would look to as king. And yet here comes this little scrawny boy who now usurps him. They should be rivals. It should not be a language of brotherhood. And yet we see here in Jonathan that there's a surrender of sorts to David coming into his presence. Why did Jonathan love him? That's a question that I ask every time I read this. He shouldn't love him. Well, we have a, an understanding of who Jonathan is at this point in the passage. We've only been exposed to Jonathan a couple times in 1 Samuel. But in those couple times here in 1 Samuel, we gain a pretty good picture of what drives him. We gain a pretty good picture of, of the way in which Jonathan interprets his purpose on this earth. We see here that Jonathan was one who surrendered to God's kingdom first, right? In 1 Samuel 14, when he's facing odds on, on fighting the Philistines that were numerous and out of, out of line with why or without, out of line with how he should actually approach it, uh, the Philistines, Jonathan has a bravery that is rooted in the sufficiency of God. He's not fighting for Jonathan's sake. He's not even fighting for Israel's sake. He's fighting for the glory of God. And the language that Jonathan uses reflects that. He says, I will fight them for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Recognizing the supremacy of God leading him defines Jonathan's life. And so Jonathan here, when he's exposed to what David had done, and he's exposed to David as an individual, I think Jonathan sees in David a kindred spirit, one who has surrendered to God. In fact, you think about the language that David used in fighting the Philistine, in fighting Goliath. The language that David uses is very similar to Jonathan's. For David says, the Lord saves not with a sword or the spear, the battle is the Lord's and he will save alone. 
So that language, that approach by David would have been known by Jonathan because he was aware of the situation with David and the giant. And so he saw in David a kindred spirit for God's glory. And I think he was united to him in that way. So how did it transfer then to his practice? Well, Jonathan surrendered to this rightful king, to the anointed king, through a very tangible way. The details that are given to us is that he gave David his royal robe and his weapons of war. Tremendously significant act on Jonathan's part. It was an action of giving to David his position. I read a commentary this week that said basically Jonathan was abdicating the throne at this point. He was giving to David that which was rightfully David's, or rightfully his rather, and he was giving him his position because David was God's anointed. And so Jonathan here not only gives him those things, but covenants to David so that he might see David's reign come to fruition. He not only desires to give David his robe and his weapons of war, but he says, I will serve you. I will covenant to you. I will ensure that your kingdom becomes a reality here. And he does all that at the expense of his own place in the kingdom. Now there's something to be, or something to be thought about here at this point. That's a pretty strong action on Jonathan's part regarding surrendering to God's anointed king. But it's super important for us to pause here and think about the transfer to our own lives and God's anointed king in Jesus Christ. So many times we are resistant to give all to him because we think we rightfully have ownership of our lives. And this passage flies directly into the face of that as it connects with the gospel message we see as Christ looked at his disciples in Luke chapter 9, he said, for you to follow me means that you must give up all on a daily basis. You must take up your cross, deny yourself, follow me on a daily basis, surrender daily. And then John 3.30, John the Baptist himself, he's faced with the reality that his kingdom is diminishing as more people are following Christ. And his, John's disciples come to him and say, John, you've got to do something about this. You're losing followers. And John looks at them and says, hold on. The reality of our existence is that he increases and I decrease. And so the proper response when coming face to face with God's anointed king is one of true surrender, recognizing that all that we have is not ours. God is calling us to give to him. Now, in that action is no loss, but only life. In that surrender, you gain life. You gain all that you cannot create for yourself. I oftentimes think of a quote that we use all the time and think on all the time by Jim Elliott when he said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Another commentator that I read this week said that that's called the Jonathan pattern of life. It's where you live with a hand wide open to the rule of God in you. And sometimes that means it's a big surrender of large things. Sometimes it means it's a small daily surrender. But it's a surrender nonetheless that occurs on a daily basis. And let me just tell you what I have learned in my own heart and worked through every single day. If I stop surrendering on a daily basis to God, I start fighting God. And so may we look at Jonathan and see the response that he has to God's anointed king and say, may we be a people who pattern our lives as Jonathan patterned his life before the anointed king. May we surrender to God's anointed king. 
Well, there's another response to the anointed king, and we see that in Saul. And what's interesting here is that Saul is aware of Jonathan's engagement with David and observes it and sees this and knows that David is a growing uh, figure in the nation of Israel. And so the narrator here desires us to see a contrast between Jonathan and Saul. That's why they're butted up against one another here. And so we see Saul's reaction here with David, this anointed king, taking three phases. And I call this a devolution of sorts, where he devolves into an action that you would never think a man such as Saul would devolve into. And so we see here in 1 Samuel 18 a regression for Saul. Let's look at what that looks like. As Saul engages the anointed king of David, we see here in 1 Samuel 18, verses 7 through 9, that there's a praise occurring within this nation as Saul and David return from the battle. The women come out with tambourines, celebrating the victories, and says, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. A marked statement that celebrates victory. It's not a statement that's meant to denigrate or or do away with Saul. It's a statement that is meant to realize how large this victory was. It was very common practice in the Hebrew culture to associate numbers together. You would say one number, and then the next phrase you would have a larger number to show a picture of complete and total victory. And so here these ladies are saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Look how great the victory is for this, this battle. Yet... Saul hears this statement and fixates on the reality that they're saying David is greater than him. It begins a jealous pattern for Saul. It begins a paranoia. As he comes face to face with God's anointed king, and as Saul fights to hold on to his own kingdom, he is paranoid of what God's anointed king is going to do to him. And there begins a battle that wages And this is rooted, frankly, in 1 Samuel chapter 15 when Samuel came to Saul and said, that kingdom, your kingdom is going to be taken from you. And so that was in the back of Saul's mind as David comes in and he becomes paranoid. In fact, it says the phrase in 1 Samuel chapter 18 verse 9, it says that Saul eyed David from that day on. Always aware of where David was, always aware of what David was doing, always aware of what people were saying about David. Never resting, never leading, always aware of what was happening with someone who could be a threat to his kingdom. Friends, jealousy like that never purely remains in the heart, though. It always translates into an action. And so as we see Saul as a jealous individual, a paranoid individual, we also see Saul as a violent individual. The next segment here reveals that to us. In this next segment here, verses 10 and 11, we see the conflict between David and Saul become a physical engagement as Saul actually attempts to pin David to the wall, not once, but twice. So Saul threw the spear, missed, went and got it, threw it again. The rage that was in Saul was birthed from jealousy was birthed from a paranoia. And so he attempted to physically attack and end David's life. And in this little segment, the narrator puts a detail in there that we need to see. There's a contrast between God's anointed king and God's rejected king. And the purposes and the way in which they each operate. In this section, look at what's in David's hand. In David's hand, we see a lyre, an instrument that was given to David that David played so there might be peace. 
And in, John, or in Saul's hand there was a spear, which was a weapon of war. And we see two different realities in these two men. In God's anointed king, he was one who was to bring peace. And in God's rejected king, there was conflict and war. And so let us understand that waging war against the rule of God's anointed always results in, a, in an internal and a physical battle. And so Saul's regression, Saul's devolution into this paranoid, angry, violent individual is not just a bad day experience. Saul just doesn't have this on a bad day and now goes even further into a plot to end David's life. Look at this next segment here as we conclude, verses 17 and on. In this last segment, we see Saul developing a plot by which he will end David's life through the hands of the Philistines. And if you're wondering just how corrupt and how deviant the mind of a man who is fighting against God's anointed king can become, look at the means by which Saul begins to devise David's demise. He offers David his daughters as a snare to attempt to get David into a conflict with the Philistines that would end David's life. David was far too popular, by the way, for Saul to take on his own here in the nation. He could not do that. David was a figure within Israel that was celebrated and known. And if Saul were to approach that on his own, he would alienate the people from himself. So what is Saul's plan? Put David into a battle with the Philistines that will cause him to be compromised and exposed so that he will be ended at the hand of the Philistines and not his own. He wanted the Philistines, the pagan Philistines, to do his work for him. Which leads to another more disturbing reality for Saul. Saul was the king of Israel, whose sole purpose as king was to protect Israel, to lead them into victory, as we see even in the actions of God's anointed one, David. Yet here, in this reality, we see Saul hoping for a Philistine victory over his armies. You see what happens here. As you make war against the anointed king of God, there's a devolution that occurs within you. You devolve into a warlike existence, one that is unreasonable, one that is not only internal, but is external in its reality. And this is what James is talking about here in James chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, when he writes to his own people and says, there's a reality about your existence that is birthed out of the fact that you are at war with God. And he says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, cannot obtain so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. And then he says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is to be an enemy of God? And we see this reality in King Saul. And as Saul attempts to end David's life, it falls flat. In fact, it doesn't just fall flat. David actually succeeds in everything that comes before him. And that's a terrifying reality for King Saul. As he says, everything that I have done to attempt to destroy God's anointed king and reassert my position on the throne actually ends up in David succeeding and me becoming less of a leader. 
And so for David here, it's a terrifying reality for Saul as David succeeds. And in verse 28, there's a summation of the whole chapter here where Saul looks at David and suddenly has the reality where he says, Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David. Now, two times previous, verse 12 and verse 14 of chapter 18, it says that the Lord was with David. But there was never a personal recognition on Saul's part to know that's exactly why David was successful. Yet here in verse 28, he comes to a point where he realizes that David was now present with the Lord's Spirit. And as David had the Lord's Spirit, Saul recognized that he did not. And as David had the Lord's Spirit, Saul recognized that he could not touch him. For in David, he saw the reality of what we now know and we read in Psalm 1, that the man who does not darken the counsel of the wicked, he is prosperous in all he does. He delights in the word of the Lord, and all he does, he will prosper. So Saul sees that in David and realizes he can't touch him. And you know, in the reality of that moment, God's grace is present. For in the reality of, David, or of Saul's existence, as he recognizes his mortality, recognizes his limitations, recognizes that there is God's anointed before him, Saul has an opportunity Saul has an opportunity now, through the example of his son, to surrender to David, to the anointed king. To give the kingdom to God's anointed one. The one who obviously has the spirit of God upon him. He has the choice at this point to surrender. Or Saul can continue to attempt to assert his authority in his own kingdom to fight to hold on to this and wage war against God's anointed king. And that leads to you and I today in 2019. We have the same choice. Remember, the purpose of this passage is not just to extol the victories of David or the deviance of Saul or the friendship of Jonathan even. The purpose of this passage is to push us all through this passage so that we recognize that God has an anointed king. He had an anointed king there in 1 Samuel 18. And this anointed king's goal, design, was to, de to deliver his people, was to act on behalf of his people. And God has an anointed king now through Jesus Christ who delivers his people. And so as we read 1 Samuel 18, we should be pushed to a point of decision. What is my response to God's anointed king? Will I surrender to him or will I fight against his rule within me? Because that's the reality of coming face to face with God's anointed king. There really are only two responses to this. There's no third, middle way. You cannot sort of surrender. <laughs> there's either surrender or there's battle. And the reality of this passage and the reality that we are being driven to is this. If we are not in the place of humble surrender to the reign of Christ, then just as happened with Saul, we will fear, hate, loathe the rule and reign of God. And some of us find ourselves in that place today. We are attempting to live as our own kings. And God's anointed is before us, inviting us to surrender to him that we might experience his life, his forgiveness, reconciliation with God Almighty, that we might experience the Prince of Peace, that we might experience life and life eternal. 
Yet, we are fighting against this. And John 3.36 outlines it pretty clearly, very clearly. There are only two ways to live in regards to this. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Friends, today, on this beautiful day that God has given us, may we gather in this place and come face to face with this reality. May you choose this day to respond to God's calling of you, in you, to come to him, to recognize the reconciliation that is ours through the work of Jesus Christ. And may you no longer be at war with the God who is calling you. And this is how it plays out practically, by the way. So many of us in this room are at war with God, but we think we're actually at war with people. Or we're at war with situations in life. Could it be that you're not at war with people or your situation, but you're at war with a God who's attempting to be your king? Up front here today, we have pamphlets titled, Two Ways to Live. I'd like to invite you on two fronts. If you want to know more about the two ways to live that this passage is driving us to, I invite you to come up and take one of these and read it with somebody. Or, if you have someone in your life that you would like to share this idea with of two lives to live, two ways to live, come take this and give that to them this week. Be someone who shares the good news of Jesus Christ. And ultimately, friends, may we live a life surrendered to the rule and reign of God's anointed. He is our hope, right? He is our peace. He is our salvation. And may we live surrendered to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this time together. I ask, Lord, that your spirit would indeed cause our hearts to seek you. That, our, that your spirit, Father God, would land, reside in our hearts, causing our eyes to be fixed upon your goodness, your greatness, your reign, your rule. And so, Lord, we confess to you that we are always attempting to take the throne back from you. And so I would ask that you would cause us to be a humble, surrendered people. And Lord, I thank you for the reality of your word, which tells us that as we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so, Lord, we come to you as a forgiven people, recognizing that you are our king. We surrender to you. You indeed are our living hope. We pronounce this day that we love you. We desire to live for you. May you reign in our hearts and in this place. In your name we pray. Amen.